Come see the cast of The Incomparable and many other podcasts at the Now Hear This Festival in Anaheim, California, October 28th through 30th. Go to nowhearthisfest.com for more information. The Incomparable, number 315, August 2016. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. It's another edition of what we like to call Old Movie Club. Old Movie Club! And in this edition, we are going to be talking about uh, Sunset Boulevard from 1950 and Stalag 17 from 1953. Um, Now, Philip Michaels always picks the movies, and I wanted to ask Phil right up front here, um, is the theme... So these are movies directed by Billy Wilder. He had a hand in the script. They star William Holden. And is that the... the, What was the theme you were looking for here? Or is it movies that strangely have famous directors in bit parts? Because that's (laughs) also a thing that happens in these movies. Yes, Bavarian Bavarian adjacent film directors appear in supporting roles. This was the theme. It's a very important part of cinema. Later tonight, we'll... Little later tonight, we'll be watching uh, Grand Illusion and talking about that. So, all right, it was just it was good to see Eric von Stroheim uh, and Otto Preminger as he was meant to be seen, and, and Cecil B. DeMille, and Cecil B. DeMille, absolutely. And Buster Keaton, also a director. Yes, it's true. All yeah. right, let me introduce the uh, the panel. You already heard from Philip Michaels. And you've heard from Buster Keaton and Eric von Stroheim. Yeah, we've heard this here too. Everything that Buster Keaton had to say. Um, also joining us, Monty Ashley. Hello. Hi there. Uh, Steve Lutz is here. Hello. Hooray, it's me. Yay. Andy Anatko <laughs> is also here. Hi, Andy. Howdy. Uh, Dan Morin, sign in. Uh, signing on here. Hi. Uh, excellent. Erica Ensign, hi. Present. And Shannon Sutterth, hello. Hello. I am big. It's the podcasts that got small. <laughs> you're, you're telling me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, Phil, where should we start? Should we start chronologically with Sunset let's, Boulevard? Let's start chronologically with Sunset Boulevard because I think it um, uh, uh, frames the William Holden we run into a few years later in a, in a, in a little bit better light. Plus, okay. I saw Sunset Boulevard the most recently, and it's committed to memory now. So, um, yeah. So, the, the movie opens up, and William Holden is dead. Whoops! Huh? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and yet he's, he's able to talk Spoilers. to us through a voiceover, um, which I'm sure that we will uh, discuss the effectiveness of it later on. Um, yeah, so William Holden, William Holden, William Holden is floating face down in William the pool. William Holden. Yes, that's him. <laughs> Fo- floating face down in the pool, um, shot, shot uh, to pieces, and uh, telling us, "Hey, you want to know how I got here? Well, let me tell you." Let's go to a flashback where he is a screenwriter in Hollywood who is not doing uh, terribly well for himself. People are coming to repossess his car. Uh, he can't uh, sell a movie to save his life, not to uh, not to famed character actor uh, Frank. Uh, Fr- Fr- I, I always get Fred Clark. I always get him confused with the yes guy whose name is Frank uh, something Nelson. or other. Frank, Frank Nelson. Nelson. Thank you. Frank Nelson and Fred Clark. They're very similar. Um, two mustachioed balding men who um, were famous in their day. 
Anyhow, uh, Fred Clark doesn't want to buy any of uh, William Holden's movies. Uh, he's driving back. The car repo men see that he's his car wasn't loaned out like he said it was, and they 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 we have a chase sequence, which is unusual for a Billy Wilder movie. But uh, there you go. And uh, uh, William Holden ends up taking shelter in a mansion on the titular Sunset Boulevard, which is owned by fading silent movie star Norma Desmond, as played by fading silent movie. Movie star <laughs> Gloria Swanson. Mm. And um, it is at this point that we learn that Gloria Swanson uh, is, is, or at least as Norma Desmond, is well checked out from reality. Um, still thinks that uh, the next big part is going to be just a, just a phone call away. And in fact, she is in writing a script herself that will launch her, uh, her great comeback. And when she finds out that William Holden is himself a scriptwriter, she insists that he reads it, which is when William Holden, who we should mention is, is, is a pretty scuzzy little fella, um, <laughs> hits upon the theory that, well, I'll doctor her script and I can hide out here from my creditors and maybe make some, some cash to pay them off. Um, and thus begins the uh, the plot where she gets her clutches her clutches deeper and deeper into him. He becomes uh, the kept man, uh, and uh, she falls for him, and he wants nothing to do with her because ooh, she's fifty, gross. And uh, <laughs> he, he was uh-huh. only like in, in real life, he was twelve years younger than her when they made this yeah. movie. So it was like. It's like, it, real, it, guys, it's in, not in, in his defense, she's not well. No, no. <laughs> she they, doesn't look old. She just looks crazy. crazy. Yeah, well, yeah, the, they, 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 they make some deliberate choices on how to present Gloria Swanson in this movie, which I'm, hmm. I'm sure we'll talk about later as well. Um, we should mention that uh, uh, William Holden keeps having run-ins with a script reader at the studio, uh, Betty Schaefer is the character's name. The actress is Nancy Olson. Uh, and uh, though she's dating a surprisingly peppy Jack Webb, the peppiest Jack Webb you've yeah. ever seen. Scrawny, too. I, yeah. I could not. I had to double take when I looked it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, they they uh, begin working on a script together, and they begin uh, uh, quite clearly falling for each other. This, mm-hmm. Which is complicated because, again, William Holden's a kept man. Uh, uh, Gloria Swanson's a jealous woman. Uh, William Holden finally has enough and, and decides to leave, and we can get into the details of that later. I'm just trying to sum up the plot quickly. Uh, and that's when uh, Gloria Swanson plugs him full of holes and has her final psychic break re- with reality, uh, leading to the famous scene where the police come together come to get her and the aforementioned Eric von Stroheim who was um, who is both her butler and the first husband as he yep. says um, and, a, and a former director uh, uh, connives the way to get her out of the house is to pretend that she is again in a movie and she descends down the stairs while Eric von Stroheim is yelling out direction and it's very haunting and horrifying and that's when she um, delivers the line um, the, that uh, besides, Mr. DeMille, I'm, I'm ready for my close-up. Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. That is probably the second most famous line in the movie. Besides, I'm still big. It's the pictures that got small. And mm-hmm. uh, end movie. And uh, eventually, I guess they fish uh, William Holden out of the pool. Sooner yeah. or later, they sure they sure let him float for a long time. Mm-hmm. No. He he get he's gonna he's gonna pickle in there. Mm-hmm. I tell you. So um, <laughs> that that's the movie in a nutshell. And um, 
didn't take us too long to uh, sum it up. Moving on to Stalag Seventeen. No, no, no. Wow, <laughs> you really blasted through that, Phil. I, I wanted to wanted to get the plot out of the way right. so that we. Could, I didn't even have uh, time to interrupt you. Yeah, well, I, that that was my goal. Full <laughs> head of steam on him that one. Yeah. So, so uh, let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, please. Okay. Do. <laughs> I, I I yield the floor. Well, my first note was that I thought it was really cool that we could have started zoomed in on the street sign that says Sunset Boulevard, but we start face down in the gutter instead, oh, yeah. looking at no, no. Sunset Boulevard painted on the curb, yeah. Yep, which kind of tells you where the story's going to go. <laughs> I, I like how it screams film noir at you, exactly like Double Indemnity, where you have all of the hallmarks. You have a voiceover, you have the narrator saying, so I'm already dead when this movie starts. <laughs> <laughs> Don't expect a happy ending. Now, see, that threw me for a loop because he looks different enough floating in the mm-hmm. pool and, and filmed from underneath that I wasn't certain that it was him. In fact, for a long time, I didn't think it was him. And I kept waiting for the, this, this new character to arrive that's going to get shot and end up floating in the pool. And in fact, he starts off as the narrator calling himself a poor dope, at which point I wrote down, you've got a pretty rough when even the narrator calls you a poor dope. <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out it was him. So that makes a lot more sense. But yeah, that uh, I I was kind of thrown off by that. I think that was a byproduct of how they had to shoot the um, the uh, uh, underwater scene, scene. Be- yeah. because yeah, yeah they you- had to use mirrors because they couldn't get a clear shot with the camera <laughs> underwater and protected in any way. And also, the police uh, you, you, the police uh, uh, detectives wouldn't have shown up clearly in the shot either. So uh, I think that's why William Holden kind of looks odd and, and not himself when he's when he's floating upside. Bill, down. just hold your breath for another five ten minutes. We've got the shot almost set up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. can, can we start with just the question of why why have a dead guy narrate the story as opposed to simply start off with okay he's on the run from creditors and we don't know how this story is going to end up why was why do you think that choice was made well like i said it's a kind of a film noir staple really it's to tell the audience this does not have a happy ending so that the whole time you're watching it even the brief moments of completely unearned optimism. I, I think the moment he decides that uh, moving in with Gloria Swanson instead of running <laughs> in any direction other than that way, including prison, is not is, is a way to go. I think that's when we know that these, these things are not going to work out <laughs> yeah, okay. This will not end well. I, I, I like I like the whole movie. In retrospect, though, I wonder if that was just kind of flashy. If they if you if they started it straight, I don't know if it would have been better, but I don't know if it would have been any worse. I don't know. As a as a movie viewer, I I'm always sort of counting on the happy ending. So I feel like my experience watching this film would have been very very different if they had mm. just gone in straight. I would have expected the happy ending with him because you know they really built up his relationship with the, the little scriptwriter lady, and you know. The, it looks like it looks like things could work out for him, and the only comedy. reason that the only reason that I'm not you know really rooting for that is because I know and I appreciated that. No, it adds to the emotional punch towards the end. It's not that he himself has become a better person, but he's at least sort of trying to do the right thing. He guides Betty back to her uh-huh. fiance and breaks it off with her pretty cruelly, but he's like, look, you know, this is the only way she's going to believe me, and he sets her back out of his life and then he's working to take himself out of Norma's life hoping that you know she'll get over him and then she'll go back to her happy fantasy and things will be okay and he's just going to go back home to Ohio so in his own way he's trying to do the right thing and yet you know what's coming and that kind of makes it a little more wrenching 
I found that like a weird move on his part. Um, and and I, I took from that that William Holden is kind of full of self-loathing and also loathes everything about Hollywood at this point. Because I think it's an interesting moment where you sort of, I expected anyway, that he's either going to push Betty away and stay or he's going to leave with Betty. And instead, he pushes her away and makes to leave like you know you need to go do something else that's not with me and i need to get out of here and i i thought that that was a that was a moment of surprise for me even though knowing that he's going to get shot that uh he's so you know he, he's not going to even try to make it work with betty he knows that it's no good she needs to go to her boyfriend and go back to him and uh and and just get him get william holden out of her life i, I was i was surprised by that he does he kind of knocks down the whole house of cards you know kind of on the way out i feel like <laughs> See yeah. ya, suckers. <laughs> well, yeah, he's the one who pushes her into madness, finally. By, by... Well, short trip, Steve. Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a gentle push. <laughs> but look, the, the butler, whose name I cannot remember, Max. is the one who's Max. been... Max. Max, that's it. Max, he's been propping her, her up the all these years by writing yeah. the, fan, the fake fan letters and, and making her still think that she's wanted. And then yeah. it's, it's really William Holden who, who tears down mm. that sort of illusion. The only thing her. desired yeah. in that house is her old car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So it's, also, nice it's really strange to me that the narration never makes a note of the fact when it gets to the point where he's been shot that, oh, yeah, that's me. I'm floating in the pool. I'm dead. Yeah. And it just kind of goes on. And, and he's talking about stuff that he can't possibly have known about right. unless yeah. he's hovering over as a ghost. <laughs> that's always bothered me. I feel like the narration should stop once your character is dead. Except we start with the character dead, with so that wouldn't well, really work. Like a casino. He could be that, dying yeah. just then. This like, is all covered in Sunset Boulevard 2, okay? Yeah. I, I love I love that about the narration. That the first thing you hear is, hey, uh, I'm dead. That's me floating there. Let me tell you how I got to this point. Because you're like, but you're already dead. It's like, yeah, but I'm the narrator too, so I got well, another job. <laughs> but wait, before I descend into hell, I got a few more things to tell you yeah. about. A mutual friend of uh, of Jason and mine's uh, used to describe the opening of the movie as, I can't believe that crazy broad shot. <laughs> See, I view the whole movie as like his last thoughts, like yeah. life flashing but before his eyes. That doesn't hold up because you then no. see them dragging his corpse out of the pool and he's still yammering along on the right. soundtrack. No, he's now in the afterlife as a movie narrator. That's his I new see rigor mortis yeah, that's, his, that's his hell. He's got to yeah. uh, participate in the worst possible narrative convention of all the voiceover. <laughs> the alcohol left me my face puffy as it was. I don't know what all this water's going to do. <laughs> Close casket. Close casket. I'm going to lay out all my cards out on the table. I, I don't like the narration. Yeah, it's not really necessary, I don't think. They overdo it. I like it, but again, just because it makes it such a film noir movie. It is a noir. That Yeah, I mean, I agree. It sort of plays up to it. I allow narration in film noir. I think it works out. You need to have someone's specific point of view. You can't have an omniscient, omniscient point of view in this. You have to have here is what I'm seeing at the time. Remember that in this entire and the, that entire mansion has been it's it's a, it's a fantasy land that's built up so that this one woman thinks that everything makes sense. And everybody who is part of that fantasy has been building into it uh, for so long and with such conviction that they don't believe it, but they don't question it anymore. So you need to have a narrator who says, oh, my God, I'm the first one to walk into this monkey house who's telling everybody, you don't realize how bad it smells in here? You've been living here so long, you don't it's, smell that? It's, you're, you're, it's you're, literally, literally a monkey, a monkey house. house. Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's a, that smell is the dead chimp. So, yeah. His character can't really express that because if he does, then... And his little ruse about, you know, uh, ghostwriting her script is ruined. So I guess it makes sense that that has to be done via narration. Oh, my God. He's literally ghostwriting it. 
<laughs> Lady, your house reeks. Mm. It's not going to work. Isn't there also a little I, I detected a little bit uh, from the very beginning that he knows that the script is not going to go anywhere, but there's some part of him that's saying, wait a minute, I, I know that I'm basically a, a, basically a gigolo for this, for this woman, but I'm now, for the first time, actually being paid to work on a script for a big star who can actually get on the lot. Not that he thinks it's going to go, it's going to go anywhere, but maybe at some point he's, instead of being the person who can't get anything going anywhere, at least even himself, uh, when he go, when he gets into the orbit of this 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 crazy house, can say, "Well, now I am an actual working screenwriter. I'm at the bottom of the rung, but at least I'm on the ladder right now." But but that, by that point, he's already kind of given up on it, right? Like he goes in, and he's like, yeah. "Oh yeah, I've given up on writing. I basically am just a kept man." Like he starts. I agree, he starts out down that path. But like where his he could have pursued that further and tried to you know push it, he eventually sort of gives up and resigns himself to the life of being a, a kept man. There's a key scene that I really liked, which is like the last little bit of his soul getting sold away. He tries to exert some um, professionalism and editorial yeah. authority over her terrible screenplay and says, "This whole scene needs to come out. We don't need to see you do this." And she, she uh, you don't need to be in every scene. And she says, "Yes, I do." And he's like. <laughs> All right. Put it back in. I don't know. I feel like the last straw is really when the car, which is his ostensible reason for being there, is dragged away. That's in, true. In spite of his efforts. I, I, and, and yet it. I was thinking the, the scene at the New Year's party where he rushes back because she's tried to kill herself, you know, because he's almost out. He's There's almost a lot out. Of bad. There's a lot of bad yeah, happening. But he goes back. Yeah. I like, um, I wanted to mention, I, I, I like a lot of the Hollywood uh, wraparound stuff here that is not like the primary plot, but is just, it, this, the trappings of this film are so glorious. Um, his uh, pitch to try and get his script sold, which is where he uh, meets Betty um, and she doesn't like his script. There's that, the producer throws off the that whole. terrible baseball movie that he's, yep. that he's trying <laughs> to make it a girl's <laughs> softball team. That killed me. That that was just so great. And, and and later, you know, later we get some more of the Hollywood stuff when she goes and meets uh, Cecil B. DeMille and uh, they're there at the studio and they put the spotlight on on her and all of that. It's like I really liked that idea of the and the Waxworks poker game where she has the famous silent movie stars over to play poker at her house. Oh, uh, the Waxworks. And they never say anything. <laughs> That's also such a sweet moment, too. When she goes back to the set, they the people there are excited to see here. The people she worked with love love her and really want to see her and even the person even the people who have not been part of this fantasy for the past 10 or 15 years they're like i cannot break this woman's heart and tell her why she was mistakenly <laughs> so that she's under the impression that we wanted her back on the set because we love her too much but That's literally a- only when the spotlight is on her which i thought was such a great moment the second <laughs> they pull it off everybody dissolves and walks away and then the boom mic comes down she swats it like it's a fly that's yeah. hovering down to her yeah <laughs> I love that scene because they had the sense not to make a whole new set. Cecil B. DeMille, working director, had Mm -hmm. a set he was shooting on. They just went over there and used that. I love every scene like that in every movie like yeah. that. Especially especially knowing that they had to they still had to rent and book a huge movie crane and huge lighting system <laughs> just to be in front of the actual camera and the actual lighting system they rented. I love every scene like that. I, I enjoy the biliousness of uh, of uh, Billy Wilder towards Hollywood because when they yeah. when they're doing the the pitch of the softball movie, they're naming these actors that that could play the, right. the part. Yeah, and that'd be that great throw- for William Demarest. Yeah, and there's a throw 
throwaway line about you would have rejected uh, Gone with the Wind and and uh, uh, ah, that was Fred me. Clark goes, no, that was me. Who yes. wants to see a Civil War picture? Yeah, well, I think that's probably the most for me the most fascinating thing about the movie is the fact that it got made at all. Given that you know Hollywood is yeah. supposed to be projecting this view of the Dream Factory and you know all, uh, these workers are all they love each other and it's just this wondrous rainbow land where nothing bad ever happens and uh, I'm sure the fact that all of these silent actors were basically sidelined and and a good percentage of them probably were going silently nuts in their dilapidated mansions uh, you know thinking of the glory days is not something that they wanted to get out there. Well, it's funny how many movies I feel like use that whole trope too of like well talk you know talkies did away with the silent pictures when you know yeah that's true but there were what like 20 years of of silent pictures before there were there were like you know now have been like 80 years of talkies we're still very focused on that the other joke that i wanted to mention that that i thought was a nice skewering of hollywood is where he describes a a screenplay that he did work on that you might have seen and he said i wrote it it was about okies in the dust bowl by the time it got made it played out on a torpedo boat (laughs) it's like what (laughs) it's just i love it i love that just you know the whole cynicism of hollywood and how i mean uh, these are the same jokes that people make today about Hollywood it, it isn't it isn't that different but I, I love that there is that moment of like wow this is pretty lacerating for a movie that you know obviously got made with a budget and became I mean it became famous I'm not surprised about that because Hollywood loves movies about itself but it is pretty lacerating the fact that it got yeah, made but it also wound up like playing well in the bigger cities and not doing very well in like small towns and it wasn't for several years as it uh, they re-released it and it had by then become something of a classic that oh. um, that it solidified. That's not surprising, right? I mean, as so many sort of insidery things, they they play well to the people who actually are are on the inside. It's weird yeah. that Wilder was so given to those jokes, given that you would think that at that point in his career, if he wrote a script, he could be pretty sure that's what's going to show up in a movie, right? Mm. Uh, we'll get to this later in Stalag 17, but uh, <laughs> apparently um, the studio suggested maybe not making it a German prison camp because they wanted to uh, <laughs> right. they wanted to sell it, show it in Germany, and he, and Could that was Polish prison guards. Yeah, <laughs> and that was the the last, and that ended up being the last movie he made for that studio. So mm. uh, so he he um, he had his uh, uh, opinions, and they were generally right about things. I, I, I gave him short shrift during the during the summary, but uh, Eric von Stroheim, I, I really like his performance in this. He's very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very really. Good. Very he hits caring. all the notes of, of being of being uh, just heartbroken for her throughout. Yeah, mm-hmm. and for his part in that. And think about what he gave up. Okay, he could, he could have. There there are a lot of directors that made the transition very very well, and if he was as big as they say he was, he could probably have made it big. But he was. His 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 career was this person, and uh, this is another case where you see again this bubble of delusion inside this house. I, I love one of the things I love about that ending is that he's uh, when he's uh, pretending to be directing her as she's coming down the staircase and pretending that the press photographers are all like movie cameras. He's do he's doing things that really are taking him back to when he was the yeah. big powerful director. Yeah. You see him mm-hmm. glancing up at the lights, glancing at this one, making sure that this person is ready. A lot more than he needs to sell this to this crazy delusional woman who's having a completely <laughs> disconnected break. Yeah, he yeah. could just say, you know, okay, little puppy, <laughs> time to yap, yap, yap for your doggy treat. But he, 
there, I think there's part of them that actually kind of liked being back in control of a film set again. Well, there's that earlier scene when they're when they're at the studio and he points out, "This used to be my office. It took up this entire space." And so, yeah. Yeah, his performance is kind of like a, a revelation. Um, the first time I became aware of this story was, God help me, the Carol Burnett show and her <laughs> spoofs of Nora Desmond and... Um, Billy the Bedbug. Yes, Billy the Bedbug. Yeah, Harvey Corman doing Max. And, you know, to, to go from that and then to finally see the movie it's based on and see, you know, just how much more is there in their performances and in the script... Um, it's I love it. I actually I mean, one of the things that I have throughout this movie is this sympathy for the people who are making it, because I know that in many cases they lived this. Right. I mean, th- these were mm-hmm. people who actually, you know, Gloria Swanson was a silent movie star who didn't work a lot after that. Eric von Stroheim, he, you know, he directed Greed, a legendary movie, but he didn't direct a movie after the early 30s. So. You know, I think that in some ways, when I look at Eric von Stroheim as Max and he he doesn't, you know, he's just a butler and he doesn't direct anymore. It's like there's got to be some residence in that, too. So um, but it is. But, you know, regardless, it is a a, a really fun performance. And I like I like that character a lot. And you do feel the sadness and and the loyalty to her that I I could I could not leave her. I could not be away from her, he says. And it's it's uh, it's I was the first husband. I just love that. I know that reveal is is so good. Yeah, there's a scene as uh, as she's descending the stairs and he's directing her when oh. there's just a, a quick close-up of him and you just see him swallow. And it says so much in the, just that one moment. And from there, I think they cut over to head hopper bawling and that, that just kind of adds. <laughs> but yeah. it, it does take a lot of guts now that you think – now that you talk about it, uh, about to uh, – if, if you worry that people in the real world have this perception that your career was over with, you're, you're nowhere, you're nobody, it, you're, you're, it was completely finished 20 years ago, there's no chance of a comeback, nobody cares about you, and someone says, we'd like you to play the part of someone who used to be big 20 years ago, used to do the job you did 20 years ago was as big as you are were 20 years ago but right now it's nothing nobody no one knows where she is and no one cares about you anymore that takes a certain amount of confidence that it's it's fascinating if you read the 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 trivia for this and i I, i'm sure it's this is actually true imdb imdb trivia as opposed to made up imdb trivia which is most of it but they, they, they. Uh, uh, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett went to a lot of um, uh, silent movie film actresses to try and convince them. Mary Pickford and uh, um, uh, a, a whole bunch of people. May, yeah, Mae West. Uh, and I, I believe it was Mary Pickford when they they pitched it to her. They could see her growing visibly disgusted as they <laughs> as they were telling the story, and and they just sort of like stop and go, "Well, we are sorry for wasting your time. We're going to go now. Please don't." That, that must that must have been just as tough as oh actually we came we we, we contacted you because we wanted your car it's like oh of course yeah. Paramount wants yeah. me back again to be a big big star yeah we have a, this this role of a pathetic crazy old woman who hysterically <laughs> thinks she still has a career and the first person we thought of was you Ms West on the other hand that's got to some of them it's got to be like oh a role again yeah, yeah well, that's true. I mean yeah. that's what Norma Desmond reacts to the same thing right it's like ah yes Joan Crawford was perfectly happy to keep working in these these schlocky schlocky movies to be like an axe murderess (laughs) to be paradising her own characters i was gonna say that um the scene where she does her bathing beauties number you can draw a direct line from that to whatever happened to baby jane Mm -hmm. those are very similar performances 
But I don't know that I would consider this a pathetic... Like, the character is pathetic. Yeah. But the performance, you get to act as much as you possibly can. Uh-huh. Right. You're guaranteed to and get a best more. actor. <laughs> yeah, Gl- Gloria Swanson is terrific in this movie. She is. She is. Um, and I think a lot of that is because she she was a silent actress, and I mean, the whole point of being a silent actress is to overact as much as humanly possible, right. since you can't get it done with with your uh, with your voice. And yeah. uh, boy, does she ever. <laughs> yeah, and I think she was able to throw her throw herself into the role very well. Um, the fact is that unlike some of the actresses that they approached, she had transitioned to radio and television and stage. She was still working. She just wasn't working in the movies. Mm. And, you know, when they approached her, you know, she wasn't necessarily looking to go back to the movies, but she's kind of like, this is an interesting role. I, I can see myself doing this. And so, she was I she think... was very good friends with uh, Michael Curtiz, the director mm-hmm. of Casablanca, and he mm-hmm. he said, if you don't take this role, you're 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 a dummy. Yeah. <laughs> take the role. <laughs> not 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 every actor not every actor could have taken this role either. It really does require you to be that kind of professional that can bury your own ego in the in the interest of making this character work. Because if if uh, someone who is who is more self invested in their own image would say well I'm going to say that she's been sort of wronged by these other people and the reason why she turns out the way she does is because everybody's been bullying her even though she's awesome and great and she's just sort of broke because of all this awesome pressure no she was okay with saying that she was she's had, had c- continuous problems in the 1990s or 2000s we might say that she was exhibiting behaviors that were diagnostically uh helpful uh, by a trained medical observer uh, but she's willing to basically strip herself of all this dignity to become this person that again she's living in this glass dome but as soon as you put a crack in that dome she's going to do everything she has to to repair that and prevent a real air from coming in well i mean andy talking about the present day i mean the the this is a story also about fame and the insulating of fame right because she's just she is insulated even though she's lost it and you know she's got a pet chimp she's got max there <laughs> she had a pet chimp. sorry this well r.i.p chimp all yes. of those pictures of her everywhere. show some respect for the chimp she, she is insulated entirely from reality here which famous people to this day are are mm-hmm. that the whole time i was watching this i just i couldn't stop thinking about michael jackson and just yeah. how yeah. weird yeah. he got at the end of his life i mean you know not just because of the chimp but you know it helped. <laughs> the, but the, the yep. fact that you know, he bubbles. had nobody in his life who was going to tell him no this is ridiculous what yeah. you're doing he just had so much power and he was insulated from the real world and and yeah i mean he's certainly not the only one that was just you know the monkey made me think of that i wanted to mention uh, a counterpoint to norma desmond there's a Go really on. nice scene very late with a uh, Betty, where um, Joe is talking to Betty about her background, and she says that she was going to be an actor, but it didn't work right. out. She got her nose fixed, and because uh, they, they said, well, you know, you've got a problem with your nose, so she got her nose fixed, and then she came back, and they said, yeah, also, you're not a very good actor. <laughs> Sorry about the nose thing. She says she doesn't miss the spotlight, and I really loved that, because who do we know who really, really loves the spotlight. And, and 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 she is happy to be behind the scenes. She wants to work in the pictures. She comes from a picture family. She's a script supervisor. She wants to be a screenwriter. She's, you know, she's interested in Joe, so she's not entirely on the right track. She's got some things about her that are messed up. But um, you, it's just, it, it, she is kind of the healthy counterpart counterpoint to, to norma desmond and i really like that scene where she she says that that she doesn't miss I'm, the spot. I, I'm gonna i'm gonna counterpoint your counterpoint okay um, yeah. I, I think wow yeah <laughs> Q, 
QED. I think um, uh, actually Billy Wilder kind of stacks the deck against poor Norma in this movie. And in fact, that whole, the montage where they have her getting ready for the part, uh, doing these horrible uh, uh, mm-hmm. beauty things and fitness things, that was actually a um, a very bitter argument broke out between Billy Wilder and, and, and uh, Charles Brackett, uh, the screenwriter, uh, the co-screenwriter, over it. Brackett thought it was too cruel, and Billy Wilder says, "Ah, you're stupid." And they they nearly <laughs> apparently came to, to they apparently came to to blows almost over it. And uh, Billy Wilder got his way because he's he's the director. And as soon as the movie was over, Billy Wilder informed Charles Brackett they would never work together again, and and that was that. Wow! Wow! And then Charles Brackett went slowly insane, and then he went mad with a chimp. <laughs> got shot by Greta Garbo. I, I I I tend to agree with Charles Brackett. I think they they lay it on a little bit um I agree. a little a, a little bit thick on 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 poor norma although although at the same time it is kind of a you know it is a critique of the idea that's continued into this day and age of a woman of a certain age being unable to get roles in hollywood because you know they've sort of aged out of that demographic uh, right oh sure it's 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 a fine line to walk and i think occasionally the movie trips over the line yeah i i think you could say that about a, a lot of things i mean it is very overinflated and very uh, the whole movie is kind of a not quite a pastiche but right it is it is a grotesque it is yeah. it, it's mm. above and beyond sort of the whole thing it's funny how when he first drives in and he sees the house my immediate thought was um, that it was uh, Great Expectations, which he then calls out like 30 seconds after I right. thought it. He mentions it. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Well, we've, we've hit the nail on the head there. But it is that sort of, you know, it, it is an over-the-top movie as we, in her acting, in the plot, in, in all that. And it works because it's in service of, of the point. Yeah, I don't think the beauty routine at the end is any, any worse than anything that we've seen going up to that point, to be honest with you. Uh, in particular, like the the bathing beauty thing, and oh, uh, yeah, and her little chaplain routine, which is one of the most terrifying oh, things I've so ever weird. seen. <laughs> so with weird. that discordant music behind it, it is just super super creepy. I'm actually scared of Charlie Chaplin now because of that scene. <laughs> Buster Keaton probably appreciated that. I bit. watch him and I think, oh God, you yeah. should be. See, I told you Chaplin was bad. <laughs> Honestly, the the scene with with all the beauty stuff that she does. To me, it didn't it didn't seem like it was laying it on that thick because, you guys, it's not that far removed from some of the stuff I have done myself just <laughs> sure. to go to work. I was I was thinking what just about just now that if they had remade this movie like right now, that scene, there'd be so many knives. There would be so many needles. There would be like yeah. hammers and chisels. That was like mellow. Was anyone else impressed that Betty got her nose fixed for 300 yeah. bucks? Well, it was funny yeah. to me that that was even a thing in 1950. Yeah, my first thought was, wow, what a bargain. Well, that's yeah. how much a car costs, so. I mean, I, I would have thought that plastic surgery to get, say, like a minor nose imperfection fixed, you know, was something that came several decades later. And and, and she mentions it in such a matter-of-fact way that it must have been, at least in Hollywood, uh, relatively normal even then. Mm-hmm. I, I want to mention just one more thing, which is how great the atmosphere is in that dilapidated house with the, the empty yeah. pool and the tennis so, court well, that's yeah, falling it apart. it is well done. And in particular, the, the little... The, the very small detail of the wind that causes the pipe organ to play oh, on its own yeah. is, I think, the best thing in the movie for me. As usual, anyone who plays a pipe organ is crazy. 
Yeah. It's just so perfect, though, because it always the wind always seems to blow at exactly the moment when a creepy organ note is called for. And, and I thought it was fascinating to even think about, you know, going in, I knew some of this stuff about the movie. I knew that he was dead going in because I actually got that like a trivia question a few years ago. Well, and it's a, it's a very well parodied uh, scene. Oh, absolutely. Throughout. Absolutely. And and I think but for me, like sort of getting a handle on a, a the movie was much funnier at parts than I expected, though. Billy Wilder, of course. Um, and B, it is kind of a horror movie, right? Like, Oh, she's playing the Phantom of the Opera at points. Well, yeah, and it, it made me think a lot of Psycho, too, you know, just yeah. in terms of there are some similarities just in some of the shots and some of the, some of the treatment and the story structure. It's, a, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting movie because of that. It's more interesting than I initially thought it would be. It's so malleable, you're right, in that you, you really could make it into a comedy. It could be interpreted as a horror it's, film. It's kind of a black comedy, yeah. Black, black comedy is what I think. Andy said you could almost view it as a tragedy. No, not almost. That is exactly how I view yeah. it. And that's, that's actually why I'm not a fan of this movie, because I'm, I don't <gasps> generally like tragedies all that it's much. Too sad. I thought, well, I thought I had seen this before and I didn't and that I hadn't liked it. And then I watched it and realized, actually, I don't remember anything about this, but I still don't like it. Because for me, it, I I just kept seeing Norma Desmond as this character that I was just watching descend farther and farther into the depths of a very uncomfortable mental health issue. And it, I, I know that there's dark humor to it, and I absolutely understand people seeing it from those other perspectives. But for me, it was just nothing but sad, sad, sad all the way through. And I was just wrung out by the end and kind of glad it was done yeah it's more tragedy to me than anything else as well is and in particular because everyone around her has such sympathy for her but they have no means of of changing anything you know they certainly can't fix her and any attempts to do so just drive her further down the path but i mean there's certainly william holden's character certainly has sympathy for her as he comes rushing back you know even though he's disgusted with the way that he's been around her you know he comes rushing back after he hears that she's committed or attempted suicide and the first husband also is still <laughs> hanging around trying to do what he can obviously cecil b DeMille, you know is 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 saddened and and not sure what to do and and kind of Box on actually telling her that she's not supposed to be in the picture and it's just the whole thing is very very sad to me and and that to me was that kind of the overarching uh emotion that i took away from it more than any of the comedy or or horror elements mm. i don't think it has the form of a tragedy like uh like a lucia de Lamour, which is kind of similar in which it ends with the uh, the major female character having this total disassociative break uh, only the opera ends with her dying, actually. Uh, and but the thing is, it's that's a proper that, that's that's what I consider to be a more uh, traditional tragedy. In that we really don't want we we're following this woman Lucia, and we're trying to we're, every time something bad happens, we're really not seeing it through anybody else's eyes. We're really hoping, oh, this is terrible. I hope she makes her, her way out of this. But we're pretty sure that because of the format of this, this opera, that's not going to happen. Uh, the only thing that makes me not primarily think of this movie as a tragedy is that I think that she is the figure, uh, Norma Desmond is the figure that does things to other people, you know, where she's manipulating other people constantly. So it's not as though we don't feel badly for her, but we're more concerned about what she's done to this poor director who's thrown away his career, what you he's done be. to the... Okay, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's individual It's individual perception. And what, and what you said is very, very good, too, in that we'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk about this when we talk about Stall 17, but it's interesting when you look at events that were kind of common and throwaway and maybe even cliched scenes that now... 
when we look at when we have a scene in which we see um, men peeping at women showering through a telescope, that's no longer oh huh, wacky barracks hijinks. It's like no, that that's a crime. That's terrible. You shouldn't be doing yeah. that. That's horrible. <laughs> you're you're all horrible people for doing that. When I was in English class. In 10th grade, I remember, you know, when we were learning about what, what tragedies are, and, you know, the, the real basics are a, a, a tragic events, an unhappy ending, you know, the, the main character falls at the end. And I think we do have all those pieces. But the one thing that my teacher said that I always remembered is that, that for him, the true hallmark of a tragedy is that you can kind of see it coming all the way through the, the film or the story. And I think that this, I mean, we start with the main, main character, the POV character, dead at the very beginning of it. Oh, that's the least <laughs> tragic thing about it. Really, I know, yeah. and then the other main character ends up in in jail. I just, uh, yeah, I think there's there's no truer definition for 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 my broken heart at this point. I feel for poor Max too, watching his replacement move into the house. Mm. Yeah, I thought about that. Like he has to watch. Finally, got rid of that monkey, and now mm-hmm. comes another jerk. <laughs> <laughs> So, so what you're suggesting is that Sunset Boulevard is about a director who murders a monkey to get rid of his rival. Well, no, my prequel was about that. Oh, okay. That's the wide Sargasso Sea of Sunset Boulevard. No, it's uh, Sunrise Boulevard. Oh, nice. I was yeah. reminded a lot, strangely enough, of, of Let the Right One In, which uh, you know features the companion to the, the young oh, yeah. vampire. The old companion. And, uh, yeah, and, and the, the new fellow comes and the old one has to stand by and, and help her out. And watch as the new guy sort of takes over his position. It's uh, it's very sad. Many sad things in this movie. William Holden. We haven't given a whole lot of props. We've talked about uh, Joe Gillis's character a bit oh, here and there, yeah, but yeah, yeah. but what about William Holden? Great floater. What about him? Wonderful floater. What what do you think about <laughs> William Holden? I like yeah. William Holden. Not afraid to be um, unsympathetic. No. <laughs> yeah, mostly. I mean, there's flashes here and there of sympathy. I think there's he brought a lot of nuances to the character. Um, I wound up seeing this um, again after several years after Stalag 17. So it was really interesting to watch him um, inhabit a totally different type of cynicism. Um, you know, yes, he's still sort of looking out for himself. But in this case, you know, he cares enough about Nora, at least, you know, when he fears that she tries to kill herself, he, he goes back. He doesn't have to, but he does. Um, he tries to do the right thing at the end, getting Betty, you know, trying to remove himself from the lives of these two women that he feels, you know, that he needs to, as you said, he needs to get Betty back on track to where she should be, in his opinion, and um, and try to shake Nora out of Norma Desmond out of her delusions, um, even as he's getting himself out. But I liked how Holden himself, you know, tended to carry himself. He created so many ticks for this character. There was constantly, anytime he had a bit of paper in his hand, he would start folding and rolling and playing with it as he's talking, um, while he's writing, always having the pencil in his mouth or in his ear, things like that. He just really brought the character to life for me. I like, he has a good physicality to him too. I mean, he's like that scene where he goes in to see Betty in her office and he sort of strikes a po- He's like leaning against the door mm-hmm. frame, but like it's staged, right? And, you know, he's trying to present a certain atmosphere, this, this sort of devil may care. You know, he's playing a character even then with her. It's very different from the, you know, how he acts when he's around Norma. And I, I, I really, I like Holden a lot and I think he's good in this movie. So the, an interesting, uh, just bit of backstory is he was kind of down and out at this point in his career. Uh, he, he had a big splash in 1939 with Golden Boy, 
and then he spent most of the 40s uh, making garbage and not being very good in garbage either. And so this 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 was kind of his his lifeline in a way. In a way, he he was sort of a male Norman Desmond uh, mm. getting back into the 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 big uh, swing of things. And yeah, it's it, it it's a very uh, 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 nuanced performance, uh, I think. Yeah. He's a little wooden to me. Mm. Must be why he floats so well. Hey! Oh, oh, he's, oh, he's a witch. He's a witch. Burn him. Burn him. He's so a handsome enough fella, and, and there's something sort of innately likable about him, I think. And maybe that's mm-hmm. just because he is a handsome fella, and he carries himself well. But also, there are points in this movie where I feel like he's expected to emote a bit more than he gives. <laughs> there's not a lot of there's not a lot of emotion that comes out of him in in this or Stalag Seventeen. Mm. Well, I would disagree with Flashes. you about Stalag Seventeen, uh, there, Steve. <laughs> All right, let's move on to Stalag Seventeen, which we're going to brighten things up with a story about a Nazi <laughs> prison camp. To a prison camp, yay! <laughs> So as Steve was saying just moments ago, mm-hmm. it's interesting yes. that he should bring up William Holden's uh, performance because it's three years three years after uh, Sunset Boulevard was made, and uh, uh, here is Stalag Seventeen, which I I feel is a very um, a very different kind of uh, William Holden performance, a little bit more assured. We will have this discussion later, but yes, it's set in a, a prison camp where all the prisoners are apparently sergeants. Uh, yes. And therefore, and as the, again, voiceover narration from a guy <laughs> who's a sergeant explains, yeah, you get all the sergeants in the camp and no one, uh, and everyone's uh, uh, getting in each other's faces. So yeah, he opens saying, how come no one ever makes movies about prison camps? Yeah. Well, <laughs> we're pretty great. Watch us. We're doing <laughs> it. This out. Uh, they should have opened with Dunbar floating face down in the water tank. <laughs> I can't believe those crazy Nazis shot me. Um, So, uh, yes. So we are introduced to all the members of the prison camp. William Holden is Sergeant Sefton. He is the... the, uh uh, I guess you would call him the prison camp uh, cad, the 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 scrounger. He, he has knows all, how to get things. He knows how to get things, and he parses them out for 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 uh, money in the form of cigarettes and other uh, other uh, uh, Red Cross goods. For anyone who's seen Shawshank Redemption, this is red. Yes, very oh, yeah. good. Thank you. Very helpful. Uh, uh, we meet some other people who are in that um, in that <laughs> barracks. Uh, there's, um, Robert Strauss, who plays Animal. He's uh, great. Yeah, mm. we'll, we'll, be talking, uh, we'll, we'll be talking about Animal. He's great <laughs> at that role. He, you don't like that role in here, that's fine. Awful. His, li- his little oh. friend, Harvey Lembeck, who plays Sergeant I, I gotta say, though, that Brad Garrett has aged really, really well. <laughs> <since 1953. laughs> I'm yes. the ethnic guy. Eddies. Eddies, Eddies. I shave every 20 minutes, and this is how bad it always gets. <laughs> As Sergeant Sefton is to uh, uh, Red and Shawshank Redemption, so is uh, Animal to everything Brad Garrett has ever done. There's Harvey Lembeck, Sergeant Shapiro. He's he's the sidekick to, to Animal. He's just as contemptible. There's Duke, uh, who I, I realized in this, I hate more than Animal. He's the he's basically the jerk of the barracks. He's the greaser. He wants, yeah. You got to have that role. Wants, you gotta be, there's yeah. got to be a jerk. There's Sergeant Price, who's played by Peter Graves, who is so clean cut, nothing could be wrong with him. <laughs> Look at that fine Teutonic posture. And then there's the uh, the forgettable 
bag of bones who plays the 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 head of the 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 chief of the barracks who i i can't even be bothered anyhow the movie opens (laughs) as manfredi and johnson are trying to escape from stalag 17 it does not go very well because as we uh quickly learn from all the various escapes and plots going on in the prison camp the nazis have a uh mole in uh stalag 17 in the in that particular barracks so uh naturally the suspicion turns to sefton because he is not a team player yeah he, uh, he is clearly he clearly has ins with the guards because he's always doing trade-ins and getting to sneak over into the 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 russian camp where they hold the russian women prisoners and you know plot point that i've never really cared for um <laughs> But we establish all of this, and then a, uh, a lieutenant is dropped into the uh, the prison camp as part of a prison transfer. He's on his way to another camp, and we find out that he has uh, basically sabotaged a train because he and his uh, little sergeant buddy, who is apparently the rich little of the uh, of the uh. U.S. Army in, in the 1940s, uh. yeah, uh, we can add him to and the you animal about and, uh, animal with this guy animal in the movie. and Duke. that must yeah, have been no. one hell of an audition. No, there's a lot of characters that I don't particularly care for in this movie. For a movie I generally like. Um, Yeah, so they are apparently talking about the the sabotage. And again, the Nazis are wise to it. And the lieutenant is taken away. And, oh, it was probably Sefton who who ratted him out. Except it wasn't. Because as as he says, just as the the guy's... uh, beat the living crap out of William Holden. Uh, Sefton has the great line that it's, uh, there are two guys that know I didn't do it. Me and the guy who did. And uh, um, so he spends the last third of the movie trying to figure out who the mole is. Um, Meanwhile, the barracks help uh, the lieutenant escape where he ends up hiding in a water tank while they uh, try and figure a way to get him out of the camp. Um, this is when uh, uh, Sefton finally puts two and two together and realizes it's that ni- nice Sergeant Price who's been tipping off the Nazis because he's really secretly a German. Uh, and he's... Uh, a German. Yes. He could not look more German. <laughs> <laughs> it's either him or that kid with the blonde pompadour. No, yeah. no, I am from Cleveland. <laughs> yes. This is the Zack Snyder version of Watchmen's Ozymandias of Stalag 7. There's no oh, yeah. doubt at any time yeah. that yeah. this dude is is the spy. Well, what, this Aryan golden boy here? Nah, it's yeah, not him. Hard to believe. I was a little thrown when he asked if he'd seen a grown man naked, but beyond that. Uh, <laughs> also, he's the head of security for the barracks. It should be pointed yeah. out. Sure. Wow, the rest of that barracks really sucks at electing people. They they really they really vetted people out well. <laughs> Before they hide the lieutenant, uh, there's a previous scene where they get him. The the way it works is that the 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 guy who's in charge of the of the prisoners gets them out into the yard, and then they do a little transfer involving a chess piece. And yeah. and what happens is uh, Sefton basically hides lingers. in the barracks yeah. and sees he lingers behind. Yeah, and sees uh, Peter Graves talking to him to about. S- to, to the great Schultz. Sig Ruman is Sergeant Schultz. Yeah, uh, uh, in uh, not at all ripped off by Hogan's heroes. Yeah, uh, and they're talking German, and then uh, Sefton goes, ah, and then he has to figure out when to when to play his hands. And his hand is forced by the fact that they that they uh, reveal the location of Lieutenant Dunbar to 
Peter Graves. And Peter Graves volunteers to be the one to break him out of yeah, prison. I'm going to get him out of prison. <laughs> and so Sefton has to move right then or the whole thing is up. I'm going to get him out of prison and right into a nice firing squad. Yeah. And uh, uh, Sefton makes a very compelling case, given the fact that everyone in the barracks apparently hates him, that uh, uh, this nice, clean-cut, young Aryan boy is, in fact, a, a Nazi double agent. And uh, He does have physical proof. There's the, uh, the If he didn't have that chess piece in his, in pocket, his jacket, yeah. mm-hmm. I don't think, yeah, I don't think it would have played for me. Well, there's the Pearl Harbor thing. Yes. That's right. Right. Yeah. Also, he slaps him, which seems to be what really causes everyone to take. <laughs> oh, yeah. An American wouldn't take a slap. <laughs> well, then Peter Graves makes a bolt for it, too, which kind of cements it. Yeah. Well, so, yes. Peter Peter Graves uh, uh, really does not uh, play his hand very well. Hold up well under pressure. No. Ain't it just like a Nazi? So, um, yeah. Burn, Burn on you, Nazis. Nazis. Take that, guys, who were defeated 60, 70 years ago. Um, uh, so, uh, uh it ends up being Sefton who's going to sneak the lieutenant out of the camp, and he uses uh, Sergeant Price as the decoy, where they, at the appointed hour, throw him out uh, of the of the barracks. The Nazi uh, prison guards shoot poor uh, poor stupid Peter Graves, and uh, uh, William Holden escapes uh, with the lieutenant, and uh, ich we all live happily ever after. Ich bin Deutscher! Yes. Just lie down, stupid. No one can hear you over the gunfire. No. Death with dignity for Peter Graves, really. Although I do wonder, how was his his attempt to get Dunbar and turn him over going to work? Because all the same things still apply. When he leaves the building and gets him out of the tank, they're just all going to open fire on him. I think he was going to sneak over to to Sergeant Schultz. And say, "Hey, he's in the water tank," and then they would have all gone to the water tank. And yeah, that can way. we can, can we just for the for the rest of the can we choose another name for Sergeant Schultz? Because I keep just I can't I can't <laughs> I take this nothing? seriously. Um, Sig Ruman, Sig Ruman, Grandpa. Thank you. <laughs> Sig Ruman, Sig Ruman, uh, star of previous old movie club entry, uh, Night at the Opera. Oh, that's right. So this movie took took me a, a little by surprise because. Uh, I looked at the category it was in. I didn't. I didn't know anything about the plot or anything, but I saw the category as uh, a war drama, and so I, <laughs> I had my expectations set. No, that way. it's not and a it turns war out drama. That this no. is where Mash and Hogan's Heroes and Meatballs stole all their ideas from. <laughs> yeah, seriously, this is absolutely a comedy. Mail call and announcement. Stripes. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a straight up comedy. Yeah, I was not expecting comedy, and I'm watching it develop. And at first, it's like, okay, yeah, they're setting things up, and then um, the two uh, Strauss and Limbeck start, and I'm just like, what? You know, <laughs> I, I I wrote down my note is this movie has tone problems, and I liked it. Mm-hmm. I actually liked it a lot. Um, it, but, it is a really good movie in spite of a lot of things. But but one of the things yeah. about it is, it, you know, you can't say it's just a comedy because honestly, the last 25 minutes is right. really tense and dramatic and interesting. But still funny in a lot of ways. And the first act features a, features two murders. I mean, <laughs> it's a, it is a, not unlike Sunset Boulevard, it's a, I think there are elements of dark comedy yeah. here. I mean, it is, it is definitely mm-hmm. dark and there are definitely tense moments, but it's still... Overall, I mean, it's not like it's not it's not quite the Great Escape, right? Like, it's not no. it's not just a like straight up action movie. Right. Nor or is it a, Victory or with Sylvester Stallone yeah. oh. and Pele. I wish and it were <laughs> or Bridge on the River Kwai with William Holden. To talk about the tone <laughs> problems, though, I mean, my, my problem with it is like, it, it, and and you're absolutely right, Mash. I, I had a lot of Mash feelings in this, especially when they showed off the still. Right? It's like, yeah, okay. Well, also, William Holden looks a little too much like Frank Burns for comfort. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. And um, he is a weasel. But the beginning. 
of the movie is the part that I had the biggest problem with because it's broad and and, oh, yes. and the problem I have with it is they are prisoners of war in Nazi Germany and I honestly it took me a while to get over the fact that they are joshing with uh sig ruman and it's all just kind of wacky and zany and yeah things are tough but we're all just getting on and making things work and i i don't know it 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 felt like it needed to feel a little bit grimmer than that for me to really kind of buy into the movie. And I got there eventually yeah. because yeah. It, the, the yeah. tone actually does turn about right. half an hour in, but that although, first half hour is slapsticky. There, there, and, yeah. There's that scene where the, um, the rich little of the uh, third army oh. um, <laughs> uh, puts on, they, they, they all wear the Hitler mustaches and are doing right. the little, the Hitler thing. That's a weird, uh, that must've played great in 1953, but it's not so, <laughs> Kind of, kind of disturbing. Yeah, yeah. yeah take off that. your mustaches. I don't know. I, I laughed my ass off at that. One fear. <laughs> I, I think it's funny. I think it's funny. But a lot of this movie is contextual, right? I mean, it yeah. is yeah. a movie that's much, much closer to World War II, and we don't have the you know seventy years of hindsight when they're when they're making this. Um, but I think it's pretty funny. I, my favorite scene uh, for humor is the scene where they convince the German guard to play volleyball to distract him from the radio antenna. Oh, I am <laughs> so yeah. delighted oh, with that German guard. That is beautiful. <laughs> Oh my gun! Here's a wire leading from the from the volleyball net into the <laughs> barracks. I'm gonna. Oh, but yes, I, that means nothing to me. Why don't I just probably be distracted by? Yeah, these are not. You, you you imagine it plays into the stereotype that if you could, if you were really good at being brave and shooting at people, they wouldn't keep you in a no. prisoner of war camp guarding <laughs> people. I, 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 was like, I could not be more delighted with that German guard. He's he's oh, it's fantastic at being included in the volleyball game, even though he has no idea how he's to clapping play. his he hands. Just, yeah. He hands yeah. over his gun. gun. Over. He he hands his gun to a prisoner. It's such oh, a no, good that, scene. That is hilarious. And then when he, when he gets caught, then he sort of, uh, whoever whoever it is that he handed his gun to, just sort of sheepishly hands it over to the, the more with it guard that caught them. <laughs> I, I, I do agree that, that it has a bit of a tone problem. Uh, you know, I, I would think, I like this movie, but I think I would love it if they would have taken out every single animal scene. Oh, uh, then yeah. I would adore it. You know, when you talk about like the, the guard with the volleyball, which is ridiculous, um, and, and those types of things, I mean, yes, it's comical, but the Germans, for the most part, are the butts of the jokes. So especially at that time, I can understand the the idea of the humor and especially the humor that's directly pointed at the Germans as look at them. You know, they lost the war. And this is why, because they're dumb enough to hand their gun to one of to some guy playing volleyball and forget about what he's supposed to be doing. Just remember that just because they're dumb doesn't mean they're stupid. That's right. Uh, <laughs> True. Good point. I, I really wish that I was trying to find a copy of the of the actual stage play because i was wondering if the stage play was all of the serious dramatic stuff inside the barracks and mm-hmm. all the funny stuff that's outside the barracks is our stuff they added to open up the world a little bit and make it more of a movie the exact opposite uh really? robert strauss strauss and lembeck were both in the play I, I oh it, it shows <laughs> yeah they yeah. have their timing down perfectly so they can do their comedy bits and animal can just make a face and that's all they need to do and i would like to propose that this is the opposite of a regular movie where you'd have a drama and then these two idiots as comic relief. I think this is a comedy with moments of dramatic relief. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a relief. 
It's actually one of the things that I wanted to mention was that this definitely feels stagey. And in fact, I think that the contrast between the drama and the comedy is one of the things that made it feel really stagey to me. Because I can sort of imagine how after you have this scene of, of kind of with dramatic tension, you also want to have some some comedy bits happening in the foreground, on the side of the stage. And it feels like that. Like, like you know, okay, and this scene is over. And now we're going to go back to over here where we've got some more wacky prison antics. And it keeps going back and forth. The- the whole thing is that there is a sort of a premise happening here even within the movie right like they're putting up a front about hey we're just here you know relaxing because we're prisoners of war what can we do we'll be you know here for the inspections when they come through and then when the germans are out of the room you know a lot of times they're doing okay let's convene our committee let's talk about escapes let's talk about all this right like tune in the bbc there is a a premise that they are there is a fiction they are presenting to the guards and like this whole relationship even with with schultz too is you know him like the dropping z dead right like they they have kind of this weird relationship that's almost not quite it's like a fiction of stockholm syndrome almost um and, and so I, i'm okay with the tone actually I've, i saw this movie the first time i don't know 10 15 years ago and i i really i remember being startled by it then as i think many of you were now not going into it and not really knowing what it was about uh, especially because i think shortly around this time i also saw bridge on the river Kwai, <laughs> which uh, yep. is, is as eric was saying another william holden movie that's about a prison camp on the other side of the world but you you know, and I do appreciate too that he makes a, a comment at some point about like if you get out, you just end up flying and then end up in a Japanese prison camp. Like, I oh, William Holden. So yeah. hard. oh, William Holden, <laughs> you don't know what's coming. One of my favorite books is actually The Great Escape, the uh, nonfiction book from which the heavily fictionalized movie was made. At, at least the book says it's nonfiction. The, the, the one where the British prisoners are all British? Yes. <laughs> and from that book and from other POW escape books I've read, they were playing pranks on the Germans an awful lot. Maybe not to this degree, but... Mm-hmm. And I mean, the guy who wrote this and who wrote, wrote the play, who was actually in the movie, I believe it. I believe it. He oh, uh, he was actually yeah. in Stalag 17, or in a German prison camp. I can't remember if that was the name of I it. I believe it. Adam Driver looks great in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> he was my favorite. He was my favorite of all of them. Well, because he underplays it, unlike Animal and, exactly. uh, and Shapiro. Well, the people in Colditz actually had time to build an entire glider in the <laughs> attic of a prison. Yep. They didn't launch well, it. But. And also keep in mind that keep in mind that they're, the version of the war experienced by a lot of those people is different from the version of the war that we've seen you know, presented after the fact. Because a lot of them didn't know just quite how, you know, quite the level of atrocity going on. Um, for an excellent catalog of that, the obviously uh, Band of Brothers, the Steven Spielberg series, you know, there's a lot of war being fought where these guys are in prison camps. They don't really know what's, what's going on other than they're prisoners. So I, I think, you know, they're trying to make a best of a bad situation to a certain extent. Which I think is fine up to a point. I, I liked the the I believe it. I liked some of the I liked the, the pranks that were being played on the guards. I just I didn't like the, the stagey humor bits that were clearly just for the audience. How did you feel about the wild amounts of sexual harassment when the new Russian uh, came honestly I didn't I, I, I'm not gonna say I liked it but I didn't really have a problem with it because right. it really seemed fitting for the yes. <laughs> the time it was where they were some Russian yeah. women didn't seem particularly put off by it either so <laughs> well they're mm-hmm. snipers those women are awesome <laughs> I know they can take any time <laughs> I do I do enjoy the scene where they paint the line down the road and they just let them through because they're obviously know, they're okay painting a line down too. the road that's that's the one scene of theirs we can yeah. keep I didn't have an issue with with the tone, uh, frankly, either. But I, I definitely agree with you, Jason, as far as it's sort of feeling like like having that sort of stage feeling to it. Particularly like midway through the second act, I was certain 
it, in a stage play, something horrible would certainly happen, and it would like cast a pall on all of the comedy yeah. that came before, and then everything else would be sort of the resolution or or moving on. Well, and from that, that would point. and that would probably be when intermission happened. There was literally a moment in here where I thought, oh, that's where the intermission was. Yes, <laughs> like I, I could see. I it. kept thinking it's coming. Something terrible is going to happen. Someone, <laughs> someone's going to be horribly murdered, or you know, it's just completely going to cast a pall on everything. And it never came, which I was glad of. But the whole way through the movie, I was like, oh, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> this is a war drama. I saw it on IMDb. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I had that same thing. I, Unlike unlike the, the previous movie we talked about, I didn't think that I had seen Stalag 17. And I didn't think I would like it because I don't like war movies. When we started watching it and like 30 seconds in, I was like... I've seen this. So not only had I had I actually seen it and not remembered, I really I quite liked this movie. So but I've come to the conclusion yeah. that I don't like war movies, but I do like prisoner of war movies, especially starring William Holden. Right. <laughs> Billy Wilder must really be thrilled with your comments tonight, Erica. Well, <laughs> I do not remember anything about your movies, but occasionally they're okay. <laughs> I don't know. I like, I mean, mentioning MASH, I love MASH. It's one of my all-time favorites. I love that it mixes comedy and drama, and, and it's got sort of zany hijinks, and then rapid shifts into other tones. And I got some of that vibe from from Stalag 17, and I liked that I got that. It, it's it's like, like I said, you know, there's stuff in it that I think was maybe a little bit too much for me, but um, I did I did like that aspect of it, that they are, um, you know, they're making the best of a terrible situation, and that there's some sort of darkness of like, well, you got to laugh but there's also terrible things that happen i really like the guy that goes annies Guys don't have voices like that in movies anymore that guy has no career anymore he's just in his dilapidated mansion waiting for them to call him back (laughs) so why is animal so horrible you somebody explain to me because i thought he was great i thought he was great i thought he absolutely nailed that role i like animal i think if you didn't know that it was a who was the stage actor and who was the movie actor? You you could pinpoint that that guy is acting on stage. He's a little broad, is what you're saying. Well, but I really I love some of the physicality of both him and Shapiro. Like the scene where holding or this cooking the egg and they sort of do the slow yeah, walk sure. over. There's so I mean there's some great there are some great aspects to that performance. I can understand people saying that he's too broad, but personally I I really enjoyed the two of them as a as a comedy bit. Well, it's because the two of them were sort of separate from everything else going on. I mean, yeah, that's like that. I guess that, that, mm-hmm. I guess that's my main problem with them that um, uh, they're very broad. And uh, I forget who mentioned the the subtle things that um, William Holden does the the stage business he does in Sunset Boulevard, but he really does it here, where it's a it, it, it's not of he doesn't do a big broad acting performance, and he's he's playing scenes with those guys, and it. And speaking of the tonal problems, you've got that's uh, uh, like on the waterfront with Marlon Brando. Uh, that, that said, I re- I really hate Duke. I think most of all, so <laughs> he's a jerk. I, I like how Duke William Holden keeps st- starting matches on his face. Yeah. Though. That just yeah. really the best bit in the movie me. is when he was at the end when he realizes that uh, oh, we we were all wet on you, and he says forget it and lights a match on, <laughs> on his <laughs> face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I so every great. scene where Duke is humiliated is great, and uh, <laughs> as a side. Um, this is not a very the the original uh, movie version of DOA is not a very good movie, but he he plays the heavy in that. And uh, spoiler alert, he dies, and it is so glorious. <laughs> You're all yeah, take that, Duke. But not Duke in this picture. Don't care. I yeah. love that William Holden never stops being a jerk. 
Oh, no. Yeah. He's, he's, he's right way out. Not even to time, save his skin. No, yeah. the heck well, with the, all you well, guys. The, okay, the, the one time you see him break is when he first realizes that, okay, if I'm going to live in the next 48 hours, I'm going to have to find out who the yes. real weasel is. And just the Dutch, here, take 20 cigarettes. No, how about 100 cigarettes? And you know that he was, you could see in his eyes, if he had not been interrupted, that guy, that Schultz was going to absolutely tell him what what, what, what was going down. He, that's the one place he loses his cool and you see the desperation yeah. before he comes back. Back again, mm-hmm. and probably just through uh, happenstance rather than him finding his own his center again. But still, it's I've, if we had not seen that desperation, I think it would have been a lot harder to root for him as we as we continue to go on. Yeah, but I do like his attitude of not caring. But you're right; he does he does crack at that moment, and that's the thing where he realizes, I guess I have to solve this myself, right? That I, I my my old trading is not going to do it here. So many subtle things that have to happen, like that one line at the very very beginning where. It, where point, it's pointing out, pointed out that he's not just a weasel who will just take advantage of everybody in every situation. He has one, maybe it's just two lines where he says, well, the first night I was here, I've, uh, my left shoe was stolen, yeah. my shoe was stolen, all the stuff was stolen. Yeah. That's when I learned that you got to take care of yourself because no one's going to take care of you in this place. Yep. And that, you still don't think that he's a wonderful human being, but you don't think he's just a flat out ass. <laughs> one more thing that makes it sort of, di- that made getting into this movie sort of disjointed for me um, was Gil Stratton's character as Cookie doing the voiceover. <laughs> that, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Because he has such a... At first, I thought it was Holden because I'd seen this movie first. I had, didn't remember what Holden's voice sounded like immediately. And I'm going like, he sounds way too folksy and <laughs> and, and gee whiz to, to be this character that I read about in the synopsis. And... It took me the longest time to sort out. I, I needed that scene where they had everybody in the line and they start naming this one, this one, this one. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> now I can sort them all out. Um, but that was another point where the voiceover irritated me more than it did in Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it just and, – and so much of it was just the fact that we we never get away from just what a – just what an Archie – character cookie yeah. looks like i don't know why we need a voiceover in this one at all either it's really just like hey folks we're making a movie and you're gonna watch it i hope you enjoy it i'll be back later to tell you you're still watching tradition. a movie tradition uh, cookie. hey dun, dun, do you need anything just ask for cookie i felt like that was to putty over the lack of actual narrative for most of it i guess like they were trying to present it as there was this one thing that happened then there was another thing that happened. Of, it was kind of vignette-y. It was yeah. wacky. The, no. scenes do, the scenes do not flow one into the other. No, that is very clear. That's a stage. And, I feel like that was part of the mm-hmm. staginess of it, too. Is like, and scene. You know, lights down, lights come back up, and uh, and there was some of that. I want to, can, can I mention um, Oberst von Scherbach, Otto uh, Preminger? Yes. Oh, yes. He's got yeah. my favorite scene in the movie. So the, the, is it the scene where he puts on his boots just so he yes. can tap them together just when he's talking call. on the phone to Berlin <laughs> yes. and then he takes them right back off again? He's the sort of man who puts on his boots so he can salute properly on a phone call. Yeah. And it's not just that, that. He has his servant put his boots on yeah. for him and then yeah. take them back off. I like when they lay Amazing. down the planks for him yeah. all the way across mm-hmm. the mud. Not only that, but remember that he's got the he's got the, uh, the the saboteur in his office only to make sure. Now here's my name. My name is Von. Make sure they tell you to, when you talk to the SS. You tell them that it was me who got you to confess. My name is Von. I'll write it down for you here. I've got a moo card for you. It has my t- my tumbler and my. <laughs> 
<laughs> also, amazing jodhpurs that I think Premager might have brought in from home. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he dressed himself <laughs> yeah. in this role. That's incredible. Um, and he's got that whole story about his family and how we're like, well, we are, we are not, you know, the soldiers of the world. We're always in the back, but it's still a very important thing. It's just, it's great. It's all great. Well, it's an important part because uh, otherwise the, the, the Nazis in this movie are all goofballs and <laughs> fat men who play volleyball and hand their guns to prisoners. And he, he actually lends an air of menace to the, the movie. Where the SS guys who come at the very end are like, oh, finally somebody competent is here. It's like the uh, when they bring the SS guys in, the, those guys are not yokels. But you do get yeah. the sense that the rest of the Germans, other than uh, von Schirbach, are, uh, are, are, are not, that, not their best. Material. This Sergeant Schultz is way more competent than the Hogan hero, <laughs> Sergeant Schultz. He's friendly, but he gets the job. But he does get the oh, job. He's very right. cyn- he, he, has, he has a degree of sinisterness to him because he has those dark looks that he that he gives when he's when he's pulling out the chess piece to get the That's true. messages. By the way, Phil, if if you enjoyed seeing uh, Neville Brand get plugged in DOA, you might yeah. also appreciate the terrible 1976 horror movie Eaten Alive. Go, go! I'm, I, I'm <laughs> we'll see what happens to him in this movie. <laughs> Oh, wow. <laughs> Adding to my Netflix queue. <laughs> Some other things that I enjoyed about this movie. Um, I like the washing the socks and the potato soup. That made me laugh. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everybody hey, done eating? Anybody else need breakfast? Okay. Okay. Hey, and go the socks to start washing. <laughs> uh, the, the rat race, literally a yes. horse race with rats where the rat spins mm-hmm. around and around and around as all the other rats blow past it. Um, they got Seabiscuit. They, they got all the great horse names on these rats. It's best not to think too hard about how they got that rat to spin around like that. I don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I love the bit about how they get the ping pong ping balls. Pong like balls. they just suddenly yes. have a ton of ping pong balls. That doesn't come into play nearly as much as I would hope it would, though. But they have they're strung up as decorations. For yeah, Christmas they're Christmas too, decorations. Like, yeah. oh, sure. and, and used for making smoke. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. But those are just like funny bits. And again, that's sort of like a camp hijinks, uh, mash kind exactly. of kind of jokes. But I I enjoyed all of that, and I liked how that that interlaced with the the overall par- plot of who the mole is. Um, that was all. That was all good. I like this movie. I thought this movie. I, I've complained about Animal. I've complained about the tone. But the fact is, I thought this was a really good movie. I thought this was a lot of fun. It was not what I was expecting, and um, I thought it was a nice mixture of all those things. As we said, you know, it's a little bit of Hogan's Heroes and Mash and Meatballs and Stripes and you know all sorts of things that obviously now I realized were totally ripped off. It's the hairs versus the squares. Yep, the Nazis are the squares. Yeah. Well, let's be clear. It's a lot of Hogan heroes well yeah when i watch it again knowing what's coming i think i will enjoy it more now you can look at at peter graves from the very beginning and be like i don't trust that guy (laughs) (laughs) i'd forgotten who the spy was yeah having seen Mm -hmm. this movie a long time ago like so i was actively trying to work it out again so i was going yeah i was convinced for a while it was quiet joey i had never seen either of these movies before and uh and uh, I, I looked at the times on them, and I went, oh, hour 50, oh, two hours. Because there have been times on Old Movie Club where the movies have sort of dragged maybe just a bit. Mm. I'll speak to the management about that. <laughs> Absolutely both of these, time just flew by. I didn't find myself checking to see how much was left on either of these movies. They just blasted through. They were entertaining throughout. I loved them both. Thought they were great. Good job, Phil. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. These are both great well, movies. Well, I, I, I think this movie rises and falls on, on William Holden, and I happen to really dig his performance in that. And uh, He didn't yeah. do much for me here either, Well, to be honest with you. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, there goes my theory. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> well, what do you like about his performance? I'm, I'm not... I, uh, he did I, win the Oscar for Best Actor for this, by the way. Eh. He's just kind of there for me. He no, thinks he won it for 
as a consolation for Sunset Boulevard. Mm. Yeah, some people say it. I think he does a very good job of uh, getting this line. There, there's a line of anger that is uncommon for a performance in a movie like this that, that really uh, motivates that character's actions. And it really comes across well, I think, with William Holden. I, I, I also think he does a lot of uh, a showing. Uh, you see, just in the way... His hands act and he carries himself. I think he, mm-hmm. he tells a lot about the character. I, I just think it's a, a really confident, really uh, 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 solid performance, which is funny because he didn't want to do it. He uh, mm-hmm. Billy Wilder made him go to the see the stage play and he walked out at intermission because he, he thought the, the Sefton character <laughs> yeah. was terrible. He said, well, I he was I, waiting I, for that horrible I, thing to happen. And it yeah. um, just didn't so happen. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. That's those are good points, Phil. And and I have to agree that the the thing that I did see in his performance that I really liked was the scene where he comes back from the uh, Russian women's barracks, and everybody's lined up ready to beat on him. And the body language that he has in that scene as he's kind of he realizes he's going to get clobbered. There's a major transition that goes on in in how he carries himself in that scene. That is very good. And and perhaps it stands out for me just because, again, you have uh, Robert Strauss and Harvey Lembeck doing doing something so that people in the back row in Cleveland can see <laughs> yeah. them. Yeah. Uh, They're definitely playing wingman for William yeah. Holden in this movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, that, that's why I, th- I think the, well, William Holden drags this movie kicking and screaming to, to, mm-hmm. to where it is in my estimation. And the uh, and the reason he didn't want to, he didn't want to play this character is he just thought he was a a very unlikable a very yeah. unlikable person. So I mean I feel like there there must have been a lot of temptation for him as an actor to try to play this character softer and sort of make him more likable. And you know good on him for not doing that. He didn't. He kept he kept him very sort of you know harsh and just not not a good guy. And he I think part of that was Wilder insisting, well, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's odd because I think this is the most William Holden that William Holden yeah. has ever been. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I really liked that he he was the clean cut guy in the tidy uniform, <laughs> whereas the good guys are the slobs. Yeah, yeah like, more of those Frank think, Burns parallels. So because he's he's bribing the guards for like fresh clothes and laundry service. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the problem with I I like Holden in this. I think Sefton's a really interesting character. I think there's a structural problem that probably comes from the from the screenplay and from the, uh, from the script, uh, from the stage play, is Sefton feels to me like a character part that not the lead. And I feel yeah. like the camp mm. needs a lead. I'm telling you, it's Animal and Shapiro. Yeah. They're the leads. Well, I, yeah, <sighs> well, hmm, yeah. So yeah, anyway, it, my theory, back to, back to something that isn't Animal, who's terrible. Um, <laughs> the I, I feel like that is kind of what's the missing piece here, is that I almost want Holden to be more clearly, like, not holding this up on his own, that having that other kind of, like, main mover in the, in the cast of the American sergeants. And uh, there isn't anybody, so he... He's just sort of it. So I, 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 when I started judging, realizing like, oh, I guess he's the guy. I guess there is nobody else. I liked the character a lot better. But my initial read on him was like, oh, I get it. He's one of the bit, you know, he's one of the bits. He's the, he's the grifter in the corner. And it's like, nope, there's nobody else. He's it. 
And I think that I think that doesn't serve him well. But I think it's a really good performance. I like it a lot. I just I it, I think structurally it would have made more sense if he had somebody like a like a straight edge to really play off of and clash with. And it, there isn't anybody. If only Charles Brackett was here to work on the script with mm. Billy Wilder. <laughs> Do you think uh, Price learned how to play the washboard during his time in Cleveland, or was there a big jump band movement in nineteen forty two? It was probably just part of his super secret spy training. Yeah, oh. he's like, uh, yeah, it's go. like it's like doing the laundry, but you just take away the laundry. <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly, you've never seen the washboard sequence in Swing Kids, where they just break out the washboard yeah, sure. and go wild. Yeah, they may have left the potato soup at the bottom of the of the barrel. Who knows? <laughs> you know, every single episode of The Incomparable leaves me hungry. Now I want eggs and potato and soup. potato and soup. Potato <laughs> soup sounds good. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Get it quick before they start washing the socks in it. That's all. <laughs> yeah. And maybe a sock or two. Yeah. I, I just did want to put in a word for a, I recently, I think a year ago or so, saw another Billy Wilder movie set in Germany, which is One, Two, Three. I really, um, en- I, I actually enjoy that movie, though. That's it a is, really it, fun, it's fun. It is flawed. It is yes. flawed, but it's good. But it's funny. And it's yeah. uh, a little, it's it's totally sort of over the top, somewhat satirical. It's it's a good, it's worth watching, though. Yep. Horst Buchholz. That's all you need to yeah. know. Yeah, he's great. What is Wilder's like percentage hit? The movie right before this, Ace in the Hole, is amazing. Ooh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that Billy Wilder is my favorite director, but boy, you name movies that he makes, and I really enjoy <laughs> watching them. Because yeah. th- these aren't even my two favorite Billy Wilder movies. Yeah. That would be uh, Some Like Some a like Hot a and, and mm. the, Fortune, the Fortune Cookie is actually, I, I think, a really sure. good one, too. Um, mm-hmm. And there's witness for the prosecution. Oh yeah, we, witness for the we, prosecution. We, oh. we could just we could watch Billy Wilder movies on this thing, and mm-hmm. and it would fill up a year of programming. <laughs> Actually, Billy Wilder and Charles Brackett wrote the screenplay for one of my favorite movies of all time, which is uh, Midnight, starring Claudette Colbert and Don Amici. So, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Always mm-hmm. happy to see his name, even if he's not directing. I'm ready to go check all of his movies and see just how many of them have voiceovers because I've seen Seven Year Itch and that's not a voiceover. I've seen Some Like It Hot. I don't remember if there's voiceover in that or no, not. But no voiceover. Okay. Voiceover Finally. free. That's that's why it's his best. But yeah. it does have really intrusive uh, Cary Grant imitation. True. <laughs> Very true. Well, you know, what are you going to do? Just one, you got to have one or the other. Yeah, you know, the imitations guy was really, really irritating. Oh, yeah. But I could totally see him being like the... the everybody's favorite guy in the prison. There, there is a moment where the lieutenant very clearly is exasperated by his wacky uh, impressions and is like, can we just get on with it? As long as the people in the movie know he's annoying. And I think it's deliberate that his impressions are terrible, yes. too. Yeah. I think what makes him hateful is that the camp just eats it up. They're, oh, this guy's great! And you're all, no, he's not! Now do Grable! Betty Grable! You're missing the conversation in the background. It's like, look, at some point we're going to have an escape and we're going to need to send some guy in the wrong direction to get shot <laughs> yeah, at while we're the rest of escape. So just ankle. laugh, laugh, and keep asking for the first get Jimmy Cagney and Jimmy Durante. He'll be dead very soon. He was Sefton's first choice for decoy before Price turned up. <laughs> they don't have they don't have televisions. Okay, the bar is low. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to really briefly say that. Uh, there's a scene right after they hide the radio when the Nazis come in and everybody is doing actual nonchalant whistling. Whistling. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing's going on. I yeah. love that. I've never seen it sincerely done before. Well, in Germany, they haven't seen like all the cartoons in which we understand that that's fake. <laughs> right. All right. I think we're done with, uh, with yeah. the, these two Billy Wilder movies, but perhaps there are more to come. Who knows? Woo-hoo. These were good. Yeah, probably not. Yeah. 
<laughs> Move on to something else. Uh, Phil, how'd we do? Quit while you're ahead, I say. We did good. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always, as I think I mentioned on every show, I am always pleased when movies that I pick are not, like, roundly derided and people <laughs> yell at me for, for wasting two hours of their evening. So, uh, yeah. 1776. Well, yeah. no, no. hey. <laughs> that was a <laughs> theme show. Were, that was that was um, that point of bayonet. Yeah. So. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, um, I would like to thank everybody, Phil Michaels, of course, as always. Thank you for picking the movies. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, also, thanks for joining me, Monty Ashley. Hey, Jason, check these studs. Get these cufflinks. Mm. <laughs> Andy and Notco. <laughs> I feel like he may be up to something. Nonchalant whistling. <laughs> yes. I couldn't find my Ocarina. I'm sorry. That was the best I could do. Oh, oh the Ocarina, was the Ocarina guy. We didn't even oh, mention him. We didn't him. even mention him. Because <laughs> he's stupid. <laughs> Dan Morin, uh, here's a box of ping pong balls. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Erica Ensign, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But uh, if I ever run into any of you bums on a street corner, let's just pretend we never met before. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Shannon Sutter, thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure. And Steve Lutz, thank you. Thank you, Jason. And if you need any help with the coffin, call me. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to everybody out there for listening to this episode of Old Movie Club. Old Movie Club! Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.